date? Yep. What, with the bartender? Yeah, with the bartender. You should come, Kevin. You might meet somebody. Oh, no way. I refuse to buy into the desperation to find someone just because it's New Year's Eve. It's ridiculous and demeaning. Life is ridiculous and demeaning, Kevin. You should have sex on your birthday. What is that, some kind of unwritten rule? Yeah, it's a rule. Several singles search for a date on December 31st, 1981. Listen as we talk about inauthentic Long Island accents, the creepiest pickup line ever, and why you shouldn't strip all the way down for sex in a public bathroom. Then we find out if 200 cigarettes stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and your name is James Brief. How are you, Al? I am doing well. Happy New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve as we head into 2022. Very exciting. This movie takes place on New Year's Eve, and we're talking about it because the episode's coming out on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2021. This will be our last episode of the year. But I used to throw some pretty decent New Year's Eve parties. You went to some of them? All of them? I went to at least two of them. And I'll tell you what I remember about them. They were, at the time, very expensive for, like, you know, people just starting out in Manhattan. What was it, like $200 to go or something like that? It's funny that you mention it. I actually looked it up. Three hours, I think, of open bar in New York City. In 2002, $75 a person. That is a steal. That's a really good deal. I get it. You were a starving med student, but come on. That's pretty damn cheap. It was not $75 three years in a row. That very well may be true. I found an email from the one that I threw December 31st, 2002. So that's the first one. Correct. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure it was at least $100 when I went. And I remember that you had to pay at the door. This is not one of these things where you pay beforehand, they check a list. Now, we all kind of paid like for our dates too. So it wasn't just $75 or $100. It was like $150 or $200. So that was sure. a lot of money. And me and a friend of ours, I think it might have been a friend of the show, Mailer, but I'm not sure 100%. Maybe a friend of the show, Darren. But um, me and a friend showed up and somehow we didn't have to pay. What? I think like we got there at like 11.35 or something. And like by then they like stopped taking the money at the door or something. Because we went to like another party before we, we had midnight at yours. And I remember that some of our friends, including your former roommate, uh, were really pissed. Because they paid like 200 bucks to get in and we paid <laughs> nothing. And we were totally getting as much alcohol as we could. We kind of like snuck into your party. I think it was like the second, no, I think it was the third one. Because I paid one year and then didn't pay the next year. So I think I went to your second and third New Year's Eve parties. Well, it sounds like you owe $200 to a bar in Manhattan. If it was the third year, it was Dewey's Flatiron. If it was the first or second, it was Hurley's. Yep. I definitely owe one of those places. I mean, 
I'm assuming right after we finish recording, you're going to go over there and pay them because you did the wrong thing, sir. With interest? Oh, obviously, yeah. It's going to be a couple thousand dollars now. Okay, terrific. But I feel like those were fun parties, and I don't really know what possessed me to do it in the first place, but they were a good time. I feel like Hurley's was a good bar. They were cool. The only problem that I remember with them was that it was in Times Square, so it was kind of annoying to get to, you know, on New Year's Eve when they kind of close off a lot of those uh, side streets there. Yes, uh, you know, it was one of those things that it's cliche to say, but we were young and didn't realize how awesome it was to be like 22, 23 and just at a New Year's Eve party in near Times Square. Right. Yeah, I mean, now at our age, in our early 40s, it's not like a thing that you look forward to. There is a line uh, from the Paul Rudd character in this movie where he says something like, New Year's Eve is like, it's pressure, like you have to have fun. And I think that's fair. I think a lot of people kind of feel like that, especially when you're young, you know? Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I've had fun New Year's Eve nights, uh, like your party, but I don't find New Year's Eve to be amazing. I've never had an amazing night. Like, I remember going to the party of yours. I've never had any epic New Year's Eve party. I think it's because in the part of the world we live in, it's freezing. You know, it's not always even uh, you know, a weekend, so it could be, a, I usually have the day off the next day, but not always in, in my line of work. Um, and you know, you're not really celebrating anything specific. It's literally just the calendar going over. It's just something random. I mean, I have friends in Brazil and I have always wanted to do a Brazilian New Year's Eve. Have you ever heard of what they do in Brazil? No. So what they do in, in Brazil, and remember, they're in the Southern Hemisphere, so it's it's the middle of the summer for them. Right. So if you happen to be in the beach in Brazil, what they do is at midnight, they run into the ocean and jump over seven waves and make seven wishes for the year. And I'm like, this sounds so much better than what we do in the States. I'm like, it's freezing. And uh, I've, I've never really loved New Year's Eve. I mean, I will say... Had you arrived to one of my parties on time, like a good friend, you would have had an epic New Year's Eve. I think I did the year before when I paid full price. And then uh, the next year, maybe I showed up a little late. Well, the next year was the one that was epic starting on time. Oh, damn it. Yeah, you blew it. Uh, But let's talk about 200 Cigarettes. This is a movie that I remember hearing about and thinking that it sounded like an interesting movie and just never saw it. And then, you know, I saw that this episode was going to come out on December 31st and I was like, oh, we should do a New Year's Eve movie. There's not a ton of New Year's Eve movies, but this one popped up on my Google search and I was like, oh yeah, I really wanted to watch that movie. So I figured we should do it on the podcast. It was hard to find. Uh, I got it on DVD from my library. It's not streaming anywhere. Like you can't even pay for it on Amazon Prime, which is annoying. But for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, the movie follows several young people as they navigate New York City on New Year's Eve 1981. There's recently dumb Kevin and his friend Lucy, the romantic Cindy and her self-centered date Jack, teenagers Val and Steffi, and friends Bridget and Caitlin who desperately want to find someone to hook up with. Then there's Monica, who's afraid that no one will show up to her New Year's party. And having thrown some New Year's parties I can relate to Monica and that feeling because there are some people, 
looking at you, James, who show up late for New Year's Eve parties, and then you're sitting there waiting for everyone to show up, and you're like, where is everybody, man? We're on our way. And actually, to be fair, if I went to another party, I had to ditch that party before midnight at the New Year's Eve party for your party. Well, to be fair, you didn't have to go to another friend's party, did you? Well, I had a date, and, you know, the date has a life, too. That sounds like your problem. (laughs) Are you still mad about New Year's Eve 2003, Al? Maybe. But let's talk about how this movie did at the box office. I'm guessing it was a total dud. Well, um, the movie came out on February 26, 1999. February? For a New Year's Eve movie? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. February, like, you'd think they want to capitalize on, uh, you know, the, the New Year's Eve hype. But yeah, no, that's when it came out. And it had a $6 million budget, this film. And that's pretty much what it made in its box office uh, run. And, you know, sometimes we say, you know, when it kind of makes the amount of money that it costs. And it's 22 years later. It's probably made its money back in streaming and TV rights. But as you said, this movie's not available anywhere. Today, all these production companies have been, they went out of business and bought by other companies and no one knows who has the rights to it. That's my guess as to why you can't find this anywhere because literally every film released is on DVD somewhere. But this is just an unreleased film with an amazing cast. Yes, I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to watch this movie because the cast of this movie is crazy. You have both Afflecks. Both of them, Ben and Casey. I mean, who's your favorite Affleck? Doesn't matter. They're both in this movie. You've got Kate Hudson, Christina Ricci, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, who looks identical to Ant-Man Paul Rudd. You have Janine Garofalo, Jay Moore, Martha Plimpton. I mean, the cast in this movie is insane. And it kind of made me think of Wet Hot American Summer, which came out in 2001 and also had a baby face, Paul Rudd and Janine Garofalo. And then a lot of other people who would go on to be stars from that movie. But yeah, like the cast in this movie is just insane. Right. And you didn't mention there's a cab driver in this film. Uh, It's played by a young, completely unknown Dave Chappelle. Right. It really is a Wet Hot American Summer of like, how did this casting director get this right? Like, this is amazing. Yes, it really, really is. This film was actually directed by a woman named Risa Bramon Garcia, and she's actually a casting director. So she cast uh, some real famous films, uh, True Romance, uh, JFK. So this woman has definitely has a knack to spot talent where she see, where she can see it. Because wow, I mean, this is a stellar cast, indeed. And with the $6 million budget, you know, these people probably all got scale. I don't know who on here would have gotten a little more. Janine Garofalo for her small little role? Yeah, Courtney Love, 1999. But, I mean, as an actress, is she is she demanding that much? Uh, ben Affleck's not Ben Affleck. None of these people are anyone. I mean, Goodwill Hunting came out in 98, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I would guess Ben Affleck is the biggest star. Well, Casey Affleck was also in Goodwill Hunting. He wasn't the star of Goodwill Hunting. But when I was watching the movie, I was thinking about you during the opening credits because I know that you don't like boring credits. And this movie's credits are just like the names of the actors. But my counter argument would be, yeah, but the names are so impressive. It was just names across a black background to I Want Candy, like a song everyone knows. like it, And it was, loves. Yeah, I, I guess. But like, it was so boring. 
No, but it wasn't because you're just watching it and looking at all these names like that person in this movie, them too. Whoa. Yeah, but I don't need to see who the makeup and, and all that stuff. I don't need to see that right now. Fine. But this movie is one of those movies where it's like intercut stories with different characters and then they all kind of come together at the end. For our purposes, we can just sort of like tell each story individually kind of from start to finish and then we'll get to the end. I think it'll just be easier that way. Um, But the movie follows several 20-somethings and a couple of teenagers on New Year's Eve 1981. They're in New York City. And I think it's fair to say that the main story, even though it's an ensemble cast, is with these two characters, Kevin and Lucy, played by Paul Rudd and Courtney Love. And they are friends, but there's clearly some sexual tension between these two friends, even though it's platonic they have some chemistry and we meet them in a cab driven by Dave Chappelle and he is like a disco cabbie and his license plate says love to love you and the inside of the cab is like all plush and there's a disco ball hanging down and I feel like that's a thing that you sometimes see in movies and that you never see in New York City. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Unless it's like some weird cash cab or something that you're going to be filmed in. Sure. But uh, yeah, this cab, he's the common thread that kind of ties some of these different stories together because mm-hmm. he picks up various characters throughout the film. And as Courtney Love goes into the gas station to pick up some stuff, he's sort of your sage, wise advice guy. And Paul Rudd's character is depressed and he's talking about death. So Cabby's warning him not to say that stuff. And he's just like, hey, man, music makes the booty go. So th- that's what you want to talk about, not death. Right, and he wants to talk about music because he loves disco. And, you know, this movie takes place in 1981, so disco is on life support at that point, but it is still a thing. And Kevin is depressed because it's also his birthday. His birthday is New Year's Eve, and he just broke up with his girlfriend. And Lucy's trying to cheer him up. She buys him a carton of cigarettes for his birthday, which I believe is where the title comes from because apparently there's 200 cigarettes in a carton. I didn't know that. I don't smoke. Oh, I assumed it was like throughout the course of this film, we see like 200 cigarettes smoked. That's what I thought it was. I mean, there is a lot of smoking in this movie. But Lucy wants to bring Kevin to this New Year's Eve party. And Kevin is really reluctant. He's like fighting it. They have this conversation in the cab and then at this bar. And then there's a very hot bartender in this bar. That's Ben Affleck. And Lucy invites him to the party. And then he ultimately starts inviting other people. Uh, But Kevin is just depressed because of his breakup with his ex-girlfriend. And Lucy says that they should have sex. Like, wouldn't that be crazy and kooky? And they are like kind of flirting, kind of should we, shouldn't we? They decide to go into the bathroom at this diner to have sex. And while they're getting ready to have sex, they take off all of their clothes. And I don't have sex in bathrooms, but I couldn't help but think that If I was going to do that, I wouldn't strip naked. Like, why would you do that? Wouldn't that be like a terrible idea? I would imagine if you're going to have bathroom sex in a bathroom stall on New Year's Eve, that you'd probably just be in a situation where the woman either lifts up her skirt or pulls down her pants a little bit, and the guy pulls down his pants a little bit. I don't think the... I don't think these shoes and socks and boots and tops all have to come off. Right, right. It was very weird. And then right as they're about to have sex, 
Kevin's ex-girlfriend comes into the bathroom. She's played by Janine Garofalo. And that is one of those things that kind of annoys me about movies that take place in New York City where people just happen to randomly bump into each other. Like, why? Why was she in this one diner at this exact moment? I mean, New York City is so big. How many millions of people live here? You don't just randomly bump into people at random spots. Yeah, it's a cliche in in New York City films. And the ex-girlfriend, Jean Garofalo's character, uh, Ellie, she leaves. And Lucy and Kevin, they wind up getting into a fight because... uh, Kevin now, he does want to sleep with Lucy, and Lucy actually says no to him, and Kevin's like, what, you're, you're, you sleep with everyone, you sleep with so many guys, but the guy you, you know, you're friends with, you won't sleep with him? It's definitely a very outdated uh, conversation, because right. I think you're supposed to maybe sympathize with this character, that like he's kind of like, oh, gee, shucks, nothing's going right with him, but it's a very like, hey, lady, I'm a friend with you, so that's one of those nice guys. Like, I'm entitled to some sex now. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I think you are supposed to be kind of annoyed with the Paul Rudd character, because he is really whiny, and he is really mopey. You kind of are rooting for the two of them to get together, but not just for her to give in to him and have sex with him because he's being whiny. Right, and he completely blows it here, considering she had already kind of made a move that maybe, uh, obviously, all you had to do is kind of play it a little smooth and not just force himself or expect it. But uh, Right. Yeah, he's, he's a douche at this point. Yeah, but then he apologizes and he brings her some flowers and there's back and forth between the two of them, but they do end up at the party at the end of the movie, which is where all of the characters meet up for the big, you know, finale. And that's the party that's thrown by this character named Monica, who is played by Martha Plimpton. Yeah, Martha Plimpton, uh, you guys might remember her from uh, two other movies that we discussed. Uh, what, What are those, Al? Goonies, which is the first thing I think of whenever I see Martha Plimpton. She's Andy's friend. She's the one that kind of flirts with mouth. Uh, And she was also in Parenthood. Right, right, right. She's the uh, wife of Keanu Reeves in that film. First the girlfriend and then wife, yeah. But she's the one who's throwing this party and no one's there. She's very worried because it's getting later and later and later and no one's there. And at first she's talking to her friend and then her friend, her only friend who's there, leaves the party And then her ex-boyfriend shows up, this Irish guy. He gets dumped by one of the other characters who we'll talk to in a little bit. But basically, everyone's breaking up with him because he's really bad in bed. Right. You feel bad for him. You also feel bad for Monica because nobody's at her party. She has all the bowls, the chips ready, and everything is perfect And it's funny because there winds up being an attempt at having, like, this dramatic makeout scene with her. And he basically just, like, sweeps all of the uh, bowls off of the table. Because he's like, we don't need any party here, babe. Just me and you. And he throws everything on the floor and throws her to the table to start, you know, making out or having sex on the table. And right then her friend walks in finally. And uh, to make matters even worse... Not only is you know their setup all ruined, but now the boyfriend is really hitting it off with the first friend that's come. So now it's a three-person party. It's Monica's own party, and she's sitting there while her ex-boyfriend is hitting it off with her first guest and only guest. Right. And, you know, she's not, like, sad about not being with the guy, but then she's still alone. 
I did kind of think it was funny about like the whole he's a bad lover thing because he's asking her, why did you break up with me? And she's kind of giving him like the generic answer of, you know, I was in a different place and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no, just give me the straight answer. Just tell me the truth. And she's so upset because no one's at her party that she levels with him and tells him the truth that, hey, man, the problem is you're bad in bed. And I was thinking about it like that's a horrible thing to say and that's a horrible thing to hear. But also, if that's true, you know, it would be nice if someone would tell him that, you know, like maybe he can't get better. I think she even says that of like, oh, there's no book that you can read or anything. But like, wouldn't you want to know that? Yeah, but I imagine it's real tough for him to hear because maybe it's that he doesn't have a good technique, but maybe it's because he just has very small genitals. I have no idea. Maybe it's something he can fix. Maybe it's something he can't fix. I have no idea. Right, right, right. I mean, obviously, you and I are very good lovers. Um, So I've been told. About me. Oh, Al, I mean, the, the legends of your lovemaking, Al. I mean, everyone <laughs> knows the legends of, of Al and Noah's lovemaking skills. You have nothing to worry about, Al. Uh, thanks? Uh, this is weird. I'm editing all this out. This is very, very strange. <laughs> but Monica, she's so upset what she sees here that she winds up drinking a large amount of liquor and she passes out. Right. Next, let's talk about another story. The next set of characters, these are two young ladies, uh, the teenagers, played by uh, young Christina Ricci. Uh, She is Val, as well as her friend Steffi. They're Long Island girls, and they're trying to head to their cousin Monica's party. Yeah. And you didn't mention Steffi is played by Gabby Hoffman, who's also gone on to do lots of things. She starred uh, in Amazon's Transparent. And I do just want to say, I am a Long Islander. And yes, there is such a thing as a Long Island accent. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, no, no, we don't have one. We do. But the accent that Christina Ricci and Gabby Hoffman do in this movie is fucking offensive. It is not what Long Islanders sound like. It's a mix of like a little bit of Long Island and a lot of New Jersey and a lot of Brooklyn. And it is just wrong. I mean, it's the equivalent of going to the South and you kind of want to blend in and have like a Southern accent, but you do foghorn leghorn. I'll say, I'll say, I mean, nobody really talk like this. Right. They're going to have draws that, yes, it it is. It's as if somebody in California and Hollywood had kind of a a stereotype of or, or a caricature of, of what an accent was. Like, you know, you over-exaggerate, hey, a Brooklyn accent, hey, I'm walking here. But I'll tell you that when you're walking around Brooklyn, no one really has that kind of, hey, what is it? Hey, it's a dollar, man. Hey, I'm a walking here. You know, nobody actually talks like this. This is what a Hollywood stereotype, a bad Hollywood stereotype accent would be. Christina Ricci and Gabby Hoffman, great actresses but this wasn't the most accurate uh accent let's just say that right did you happen to watch that show kevin can fuck himself on amc no i didn't well i thought that the concept of that show was really great and i love annie murphy who is starring in it and i couldn't get past the first couple of episodes because she was doing a horrible boston accent so is everyone else in the cast but like it was just so off-putting i was like i couldn't even watch the tv show But I feel like as a Long Islander, I need to defend 
my people. And we do not all sound like these two characters in this movie. But the joke is that they are teenagers. They are lost in New York City. This is 1981 New York City. This is scary New York City. And they are afraid. Or Steffi is afraid. She's really afraid about going into Alphabet City. She doesn't want to go to Avenue B because that's where someone was raped. And then they end up going to Avenue B and then to Avenue C and all the way to Avenue D. And she's terrified. Yeah, that's a very test of time thing. And it was totally true for 1981 when this film takes place. But today, a studio on Avenue B would probably be uh, $2,500 at best a month. And, you know, Avenue D, same thing. You know, one bedroom on Avenue B is going to cost you well over $3,000. I mean, it is a very nice place. But yes, it was sketchy as hell back then. And there's also this joke where she doesn't understand things like no-ho and so-ho. And she's like, I think you're making all these things up. And I don't know if maybe she was just an ignorant Long Islander that didn't know the city. But yes, today, Everyone says Soho, Noho, these are real things. Every little neighborhood has something. There's even a joke that every neighborhood has some weird uh, abbreviation nickname. Like Tribeca is Triangle Blow Canal. Right. Noho is north of Houston. And Soho is south of Houston. And Dumbo is downtown underneath something. Manhattan Bridge. Manhattan Bridge. Air. I don't know what, what, it, what the O is. This neighborhood that we are in right now, what's this called? Gramercy. Oh, but that's not like a, that's not an abbreviation. No, I didn't say everything's an abbreviation. Oh, okay. I like Gramercy. You live in a nice neighborhood, James. Thank you, Al. You live in a lovely area too, Al, with a lovely gazebo. Thank you. These girls are from Ronkonkoma, and they can't find the party, and uh, Val is trying to call her cousin, but her phone number isn't listed, so she can't find her phone number, because remember, this is 1981, so there are no cell phones. But they are stuck in the city because there isn't a late night train to Ronkonkoma. And that is still true. Like the trains to Long Island are pretty regular during the day. But late at night, there are large gaps between the different trains. You and I are going to be recording late tonight. I drove into the city because I have no idea what time we're going to finish. And I wasn't going to sit around in Penn Station waiting for a train. So that does stand the test of time. Oh, yeah. If you missed, like, the 107 train, which was the good, you know, stay out Saturday night train, you were there until, like, the 321 a.m. train. That has happened to me. (laughs) Yeah. So the the two of them, they they don't know what to do, but they wind up meeting these two young guys, uh, Dave and Tom. Uh, Tom's played by Casey Affleck. And they initially think these guys were sketchy guys following them, and they were totally sketchy and following them. But when they corner them in an alley, instead of pulling out a gun, they pull out a six-pack of beer, and they all start getting along. Right. And these guys are punk because, like I was talking about, the disco cabbie, 1981 New York City— Disco is still around and punk is very much around. And at one point they're in a punk club and the band there is playing a punk version of Boogie Wonderland, which I thought was really cool, like a disco song played by a punk band. And this is terrifying for Steffi. Val is into it. Val is like making out with the Casey Affleck character But then later, she's making out with the other guy, and Casey Affleck is talking to Steffi like, what did I do wrong? Like, I thought we really had a connection. And she's like, I don't care. I just want to go to this party. There's also this other, like, sub-subplot where they need to bring a package to Tony. You assume it's drugs, but 
you never find out like what that is. It's kind of like a weird MacGuffin. Yeah, they never explain what it is. But uh, their story basically ends that they all wind up at the cousin's party. Yes, and Monica is Val's cousin. Yes. Uh, so next we go to another young uh, pair of girls, Bridget and Caitlin. These two are friends, and one of them is breaking up with Eric, the Irish guy that we saw, uh, also uh, Monica's ex-boyfriend. And the two of them, they wind up at the same bar that we wound up seeing some of the other characters in earlier, where they also meet Ben Affleck's bartender character. He invites the girls to the party, which will be an important thing because that's how they get to the party later. But also, he invites them to go out for a couple drinks beforehand. Right. And Bridget and Caitlin are kind of like fighting over which one he likes. He likes me. No, he likes me. And it turns out that he thinks he's on a date with both of them. He thinks that he's in for a threesome. And it's Ben Affleck. So he's a good looking guy. Also, before this, when he was at the other bar, he was like flipping the bottles around trying to do like the Tom Cruise cocktail thing. But he keeps breaking the bottles. So it's kind of funny. But here he thinks that he's going to end up sleeping with both of these two women. He is still giving them pickup lines, which is really, really stupid because he's on a date with them. They clearly like him, but he gives them the old, um, your clothes look great. They look even better in a pile in my floor. And that's a really bad pickup line. But then he goes one more and he asks them, how do you like your eggs in the morning? Scrambled or fertilized? That has got to be the worst pickup line ever. It's so skeevy. And also, who wants to think about fertilized eggs? Like, no one wants to get pregnant on a one-night stand. That's true. And the girls are so skeeved out by him that they walk out of the bar. And then they suddenly are like, Ew, what do we see in him? And Al, did you notice it? Did you hear it? One of the girls is like, What is with the gladiator hair? And she said, gladiator. You mean she didn't gladiator? Say, gla- no, she didn't say gladiator. She said gladiator. Oh, do we need to change our theme song now? No, I'm just saying. Oh, I did not notice it. So I'm going to assume that it didn't happen. And this movie's hard to find on streaming, so you can't easily prove me wrong. Uh, and then they get into the cab with Dave Chappelle, and they're still fighting about who's going to end up with who, and they both need a date, and then they decide that they don't need a date. Actually, they don't decide. Uh, Dave Chappelle's cabbie like, gives them this wisdom about they shouldn't let a guy come between them, and they're good friends, and it doesn't matter about a guy, and they both agree that they are not going to go home with anyone this New Year's Eve, even though that's what they've been talking about the whole movie. They think that they'll be cursed if they end up alone on New Year's Eve, not going home with someone, but they decide to do it anyway for the sake of their friendship. Yeah, and uh, they head over to the party. And now we have one last uh, set of characters to introduce, and this is the characters played by Kate Hudson and Jay Moore, and they are Cindy and Jack. And Cindy, she's a total klutz. Uh, She goes out with Jay Moore, who's a very handsome guy, and she's pretty excited to be with him. While she's playing pool, she, like, knocks a chandelier off, and then she totally bails. She's humiliated, which I did notice. She probably leaves him with, like, a huge bill to pay, this uh, billiard hall. Yeah, probably. This is Kate Hudson doing physical comedy I think very well. Like, I think she's very funny, just like doing these pratfalls and stuff. I mean, I don't think of Kate Hudson as a 
physical comedian, but I think she does a really good job in this movie. Yeah, I thought she was good in this as well. And this is actually like the second or third date that, I think the second date, yeah, yeah. this is the second date that uh, she and Jack have gone on, and we find out that they slept together on the first date. You know, not necessarily a big deal, but it turned out to be a big deal for Cindy because she was actually uh, a virgin two nights ago. So she lost her virginity on their first date, and she's basically telling Jack that uh, she thinks she loves him. Right, and at first Jack is like, why me? Why would you lose your virginity to me? You're a beautiful woman. I'm sure you had many opportunities to lose your virginity over the years. What about me made me so special? And he's really arrogant. Like he only cares about himself. He's just trying to find out what's so great about him. He also then says that all women that he meets and sleeps with tell him that they're in love with him. And I think maybe you're supposed to feel a little bit bad for this guy. I definitely did not because he is a complete douchebag. Well, he definitely feels bad for himself that he has this curse that women fall in love with him. But I think that's because he winds up being very charming to every single woman. You assume that these women are falling in love with someone who makes them think they're the only one for him. I guess. I also just don't see this character as terribly charming. I mean, That's J- true, too. Yeah, I mean, Jay Moore is a good-looking guy. But usually he's kind of a douchebag in films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm sort of also thinking of him in other roles as a douchebag. But yeah, I mean, he's he's very rude to Cindy. She's trying to make it work. But after a while, she just gives up. She tells him off. She trips while crossing the street. She lands in some dog shit and, you know, gets it all over the back of her dress. Her dress has been like ripped and, and torn throughout the night. I was thinking about the tripping in the dog shit thing. Like, it's funny because, you know, haha, dog shit. But dog shit on the sidewalks of Manhattan? Sure, I believe that there are jerks who don't clean up after their dogs. But in the middle of the street? Who's letting their dog take a shit in the middle of a street? Like, that's just dangerous for the dog. And the owner, I assume, if the dog's on a leash. Yeah, I wasn't thinking anything like that at all. But gr- great uh, great plot hole. It's not a plot <laughs> hole. I'm just saying I thought it was weird that she falls down in the middle of the street and lands in dog shit. Also, it's weird because she keeps that jacket on like for the rest of the movie. And there's a joke like later on where someone's like, man, do you smell dog shit? But it's like you would have smelled it way before that point. And she's also like had parts of her dress rip and the what do you call it? Like the, the slip of her dress, like got caught in the the taxi at one point and she like ripped it off. Like just take off the jacket. The dog shits on the jacket. You can lose the jacket. That's true. But then we get to the party. We could hear there's lots of music outside. We see all the different characters. They're all starting to approach the party from different angles. We see Ben Affleck. He walks right up to the door. We see the doors cracked open. There's lots of flashing lights in there. The party, it looks like one of these parties that is just hugely crowded. The door opens. You see Ben Affleck's like face. He gives this like, whoa, great looking party that he's about to walk into. It fades to white. And then it's suddenly, it's the next morning. Yeah, I was pretty surprised by that. And I was thinking like, okay, was that a budget thing? Like they didn't have money to show the party? Maybe. But I also do wonder if it was a deliberate choice because throughout the movie, there are beats that are not in the movie. 
I mentioned it earlier, like Val is making out with one punk rocker in one scene and then we cut to some other characters and the next time we see her, she's making out with the other guy and Casey Affleck is like, what went wrong? We don't see what happened and it is a little bit jarring, but it does also just show you that things are happening that we're not seeing and it kind of forces you to be paying attention But we don't see the actual party. We see Monica come to and she's talking to her cousin Val's friend, Steffi, the Gabby Hoffman character. And Monica's like, who the hell are you? And then she finds out who she is and she hears about this party. And she's like, wait, there were people here? She didn't know that so many people came to her party. They trashed her apartment. There's a random dog. There's people passed out. Elvis Costello was there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was basically, she was so worried she'd have the biggest bummer of a party. And then she blacked out through her epic party. Exactly. And then we see the couples that have paired off. Um, Some of them are kind of surprising. Elvis Costello hooked up with the Janine Garofalo character. It's the real Elvis Costello. He has a cameo. Courtney Love's character, Lucy, she ends up with uh, Paul Rudd's Kevin. They wake him in bed together. That one is not surprising. Then we see that uh, Jack, Jay Moore's character, he wakes up in bed with a woman. Not sure who it is. You're wondering, maybe was it Cindy? No, it's Val, uh, Christina Ricci's teenage character. We never really knew exactly how old she was. She's like, all right, maybe she was, uh, you know, 18, 19. And Val is like, I'm totally in love with you. Like every girl seems to say she's in love with him. And then she invites him to her prom. Right. And he's like, oh, no. Uh, Bridget ended up sleeping with the cabbie and Caitlin ended up sleeping with the bartender. Remember, they both swore that they weren't going to hook up with guys, but they did. But it's okay because they're still friends. Cindy, the Kate Hudson character, she ends up with the Casey Affleck character, the punk rocker. And that at first is like, wait, how did they end up together? But it does kind of make sense because Kate Hudson's character, she fell in love with uh, the Jay Moore character right away. And Casey Affleck fell in love with the Val character right away. So these are hopeless romantic. So they do kind of make sense together on some weird level. And then as the movie's ending, we do get to see a little bit of the party, not like footage of it, but these Polaroid pictures, and it's all narrated by the cabbie, Dave Chappelle. And it's fine because, you know, he's just kind of saying what happened and who ended up with who and, you know, what was going on. But then he says something about, oh, this woman, she was really ugly. And you know why? Because I think she had a penis. Of course, now in 2021, Dave Chappelle is under fire for making these transphobic jokes. And here he is in this movie from 1999 making a joke about this woman who, I bet she has a penis. Like, ugh. And it's completely unnecessary. The person that he's talking about is not a character in the movie. We don't see this person at the party or anything. It's a completely unnecessary joke. And it's the last joke in the film, pretty much. Yeah. So it, it's a really shitty way to end the movie. So anyway, Al, 1999's 200 Cigarettes, does it stand the test of time? Well, first of all, I will say that it is a shame that it's not streaming because every movie should be streaming somewhere. This is an MTV film. Why isn't it on Paramount Plus? I don't have Paramount Plus, but this movie should be there. Like, why the hell not? I genuinely think it should be somewhere. 
And, you know, we've talked about some other movies that are in this sort of sub-genre. Rom-coms about 20-somethings navigating friendships and relationships. You know, I'm thinking about the movies we talked about with our friend Sue, Reality Bites, Singles, Swingers, too, that we talked about with Eddie Perez-Cortez. This is like a genre. There's a ton of movies about this kind of thing. And as far as these movies go... This one's not the best. It's not amazing, but it's also not terrible. The characters and the stories, you know, it's all pretty basic stuff. But I don't know, man. Just on the the strength of this cast and this unbelievable soundtrack, I mean, so many of these songs are just amazing, wonderful, fantastic songs. Elvis Costello, not only does he have a cameo and he has a couple of songs on the soundtrack, he's also listed in the credits as like special music coordinator or something. I forget what the exact title was, but whatever the hell he did, he was great. It's just this crazy thing that there was this movie with all of these huge stars that nobody knows about. And I got to say, I think that's a shame. I feel like this movie should have some cult classic level status I don't think it's amazing, but um, I think it does stand the test of time. It's a solid B of a movie. I will say one thing that really does not stand the test of time, other than the Dave Chappelle joke at the end, is Courtney loves acting. She's not good. As a singer? Sure. As an actor? No. Especially next to Paul Rudd. I mean, like, all of her scenes are with Paul Rudd. And Paul Rudd is a great actor, and we've talked about this in other episodes of the podcast. Sometimes when you have an actor who's not so great and they're paired with a really good actor, the bad actor kind of looks worse. I think Courtney Love does look pretty terrible as an actor in this movie. Um, My apologies to Courtney Love. But yeah, I think the movie does stand the test of time. What do you think, James? Well, there's good and bad in this film. The good things in this film, I'll say this film takes place in 1981, And you almost forget that it takes place in 1981 because to its credit, and I think it's good that it didn't do it, it's not like they're making huge references to Reagan or anything like that. And I like that it did that. I think that, you know, making it in 1981 kind of got rid of any, like, how come no one used a cell phone or, or, you know, or a beeper or something like that? Why couldn't the cousins find from their mom, like, you know, a way to get to the cousin's house? Um, You nailed it, that the, the cast is amazing in this film to the credit of uh, the casting director of this film like good job that that person did a great job bad about this film you know I don't think it's fair to say just because there's an amazing cast in a film that a movie stands up I will say it's worth checking out because wow you get to see like all these fresh young faces that are in a film unfortunately I don't think they're in a very good film Al and, you know, you see, like, what is it, five or six uh, vignettes? They never come together. This is really six short films that go to six different parties. And they wind up having six different endings. There really isn't any interaction with these people. I didn't like that they didn't show the party, but that's an artistic choice. I'm fine with it. I didn't like it. I definitely was annoyed by that. I thought it was kind of a cop-out. I was thinking the same thing as you, like, was it the budget? And I'm like, 
what budget? Like, just put these people in a room with, like, a disco light, you know? Except I think that would have to make the writers think of a reason that these six people all come together. I think it would have been clever if somehow these stories all merged in the end, but there's absolutely nothing that ties them together. And, you know, when you look at something like Wet Hot American Summer and you go, wow, this is amazing. It kind of has some of the similar cast here, Janine Garofalo, Paul Rudd. The difference is, without those casts, Wet Hot American Summer is a great film. It's really, really funny. Unfortunately, this great cast, it, it, it's just not a great film. And I wish it was better. The film wants to be better. But you are 100% right, Al, that, that it's, it's not a bad film. It's not a good film. <laughs> and it definitely should be in print. It's the kind of thing, I'm not saying don't see it, because if you have a chance to see it, yeah, check out these fresh faces just for that fact. So I'll say for that reason, it doesn't stand the test of time. It's one of those things where I'll say, actually, you might want to check it out because it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting to see these people, but the film itself, if it had a different cast and it wasn't just such a stellar luck that they got with this cast, I wouldn't have really any reason to recommend it. I also think it should be more of a well-known movie because there aren't a ton of New Year's Eve movies. It's fine that there's a million Christmas movies and, you know, a bunch of Halloween movies. And it makes sense that there are only a couple of movies for certain holidays, but there could be a couple more New Year's Eve movies. And if you're looking for a New Year's Eve movie, your pickings are slim. I don't think this is that terrible. But it's not that good either. I get you. I understand. So, bummer for the last movie, the last podcast episode of 2021, but we'll be back next year. We are going to start off 2022 with a movie that you've requested, Fantastic Voyage. Yeah, yeah, this is a film from the 60s, and it's classic sci-fi. You've never seen it, right, Al? I have not. Let's see what you think of a film from the 60s. The special effects are not CGI, but, uh, you know, it's got Raquel Welsh in it. Yes, uh, she's a <laughs> lovely actress, lovely lady, and we'll see what you think when she is micro-sized. Weird, but I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, of course, we want to keep hearing from you. Like I always say, at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, that should be your New Year's resolution, to talk to us more on social media. If for some crazy reason you have not yet subscribed, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever podcast platform. Hit that subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button. And we'll see you next year, everybody. Happy New Year. 